0: Hi, this is Tim. This episode was originally recorded in the spring of 2022. While we now have a better idea of how the movie industry looks in the post-COVID world, this being fall 2022, the trends we discussed seem even more apparent now than they did back then. So sit back, relax, and enjoy part one of our two-part series, The End of the Movies.
1: it's dark once again we have been gone for quite a while and we're back now i am mike
0: and this is tim and yeah it's it's been a while uh we're we're still just kind of getting used to doing this again we we're setting up our mics and like i think mike we, we couldn't figure out how to get it started and you're like oh yeah i have to turn it on i
1: have to and turn it on <laughs> again yeah it's been a long time
0: <laughs> uh speaking of which um What's been going on in the uh, little hiatus we had here What's been going on with you?
1: Oh well uh, I had a I had a baby boy, which I think is the What's primary been? reason why I've not been here. <laughs> yeah 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 but he's over 15 months old now and uh, things are a little bit a little bit easier but it's just amazing how much mental capacity that really requires, you know.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. I I have a lot of friends who are having kids or about to have kids. Uh, My brother just had his second child. And yeah, it just really changes your life. I mean, no one is quite prepared for for how much it does change your life uh, based on what I've seen and heard.
1: Yeah, definitely. Um, But what else has been going on with you? I think you made a a feature recently.
0: Yeah, I... um... I've been kind of uh, working on and preparing this film. I wanted to make kind of a Russian gangster movie based here in Busan. And I was planning on it being a long short. Um, but by the time we we got it all shot, uh, it's, it's going to be around 60 minutes, which will qualify as a feature. And I'm still not quite sure how that happens. Um, I think there was just a lot of parts in the script where it's like, you know, John opens the door and walks down the street and it's like that can be a minute on film and it's a sentence in the script and um, but it, it was a lot of fun it was it was a difficult process we we spent a long time casting searching for the Russian actors we used non-professional actors for that and we kind of scoured all around Korea looking for people um, we ended up finding a guy uh, who'd never acted before he's a factory worker and another guy who's I think he did some plays in high school or something like that, but also not a professional actor who got who jumped on board and and they were just so much fun to work with. And then we had a a kind of troupe of, you know, a British actor, some Korean actors and and other people as well. So it was was a really interesting experience. Um, And yeah, I can't wait to to finish it. But it's also kind of taken over my life uh, in the past few months. Yeah, man, because you're you're editing that right now, right? I'm in the sound editing stage and then there's, you know, visual effects and music and and all that sort of stuff. So it's going to be a a while before it's it's ready to be shown to the world. But uh, no, it's a lot of fun making it. And uh, yeah, I can't wait to to show it to people. It also it does give you more insight when you're watching movies. I mean, I just have a greater appreciation for film in general. It's kind of a miracle anytime. One gets made, you know, it's just such a struggle getting one made that uh, it's kind of great when when you can just kind of see what what it's actually like behind the camera. Um, But I've still been watching a lot of films, too. I mean, um, I actually just recently watched uh, West Side Story, which um, the Steven Spielberg. And I know you had uh, some good thoughts about that, too, right?
1: Yeah, I I wanted to get into some of the movies that we've been watching recently because um, i said that i had a baby in early 2021 um if how many movies do you suppose i watched from january to july of that year
0: uh less than usual i'll definitely say yeah, that
1: for sure i watched five films from january to <laughs> through july um yeah because i just i got no no just watching watching movies was just kind of uh, it's a mental capacity thing again, but also you just don't want to wake the baby. You no, know? yeah, um, but yeah. I did. I started watching more toward the end, and yeah, West Side Story was absolutely the the best movie I saw all year. Um, con- I mean specifically a best twenty twenty one movie. Uh, yeah, of the year for yeah. sure, in my opinion, that was my favorite movie of the year. West Side yeah, Story. well, that's
0: actually s- something we'll probably get into a little bit later on, but uh, I-, I can say that. I've been really just trying to expand, I guess, my palette in a a bunch of different ways. I ended up watching a bunch of gangster films uh, leading up to shooting this this gangster film that I made. You know, like Sexy Beast for me was a a big highlight. Um, Mm. Awesome movie. Um, But as well, like uh, the Pusher trilogy, you know, the first films of Mads Mikkelsen. And uh, that was really cool. And... Yeah, from there, I, I've recently been watching some some German expressionist cinema. Uh, oh yeah, that's 70s. Heavy stuff. <laughs> yeah, it's very cool. Um, and some seventies kind of paranoia films. Like I, I like this subgenre of the political, politically paranoid film, Marathon Man, and um, a few others like that. The Parallax View. Um, and maybe the 70s is something we might get into in a, in a future episode. But have definitely been trying to keep up with newer movies as well. We're actually planning on setting up our episodes going forward so that if you want to hear the full episodes of what we do from now on, uh, it'll be only available on, on Patreon. We're also going to try to streamline the whole Patreon thing. We're still kind of new to this, but uh, definitely check that out. We'll put a link down below if you want to hear the full episode. I kind of wanted to get into the Oscars, because that's very much related to our topic for today. Um, 2022 Oscars have come and gone. And I guess it's no real surprise, even though the ceremony, the, the viewership for it, was up 58% from last year's record low, it's still the second worst viewership in history. It's, it's not exactly... <laughs> this is a pretty consistent trend, I think, with the Oscars. Yeah. And... There was a really interesting article that was written kind of in the wake of this. You know, there there tends to be a lot of ink spilled uh, over the Oscars. And, you know, why are people less interested in them? Why why is the viewership going down? And there's someone who made a point of like the Oscars and the declining interest in them. It's really just a reflection of a declining interest in the movies in general and serious sort of cinema in general.
1: Yeah, that's right. That's uh, what we want to go over uh, today is an article by Ross Dow that on the New York Times we aren't just watching the decline of the Oscars we're watching the end of the movies. Ross Dow that is the writer it's just an opinion piece and he what he says is essentially that the waning interest in the Oscars is specifically because of this really broad decline of the power that movies hold themselves and he li- he references the year 1999 in particular. And you can think of all the movies in nineteen ninety nine that um, that were popular. And it's not just the the artsy movies. And in fact, he describes the the best picture kind of movie as as a high middle brow. So they're not even, you know, highbrow films. And I think what we were talking about with all the nominees is a pretty good idea of what these are, because you've got the the niche Japanese movie, but you also have Don't Look Up. You know, that kind of thing. So I think it was quite a broad, a, broad, a diverse uh, range of choice. But, you know, if we're diving into the article, it's, it seems to say that the power of the movie itself, when he says it's the end of the movies, he's not saying there aren't going to be any more movies made. It just means that the movies as we knew them as this big cultural force is coming to an end. We're going to be speaking with John W. Gunnison, an entertainment industry veteran who's conducted research on film industry protection policies. He's also the co-host and the co-founder of the Politics Plus Media 101 podcast. Put in the plus sign to find it.
2: Good evening, John. Uh, well, it's good morning for me. I'm calling you here from Cambridge, Massachusetts on the east coast of the United States. So it's a good evening for you and a good morning for me. Good morning, John. Thanks very much for coming on. How you doing? Uh, I'm doing well. I'm doing well. You know, um, uh, we're finally starting to see the spring here in the USA. Also um, a big day uh, with the French presidential election. So lots going on. And my Celtics just won up 3-0 against the Nets last night. So Nice. Well done, Celtics. It's. Uh, are you following NHL at all? Um, I am not really an NHL guy, but I know that there was a game here in Boston uh, just yesterday. Uh, it was kind of a triple header for Boston sports because they had the Red Sox, the Celtics, and the Bruins all playing at the same time. But um, only one of those is really of interest to me.
0: Right, right. Yeah, I mean, it's it's super busy. I mean, if you want to try to keep track of everything, right?
2: Yeah, indeed. And um, another great thing about being here in Boston is that we've got a fantastic selection of cinemas that really play all the kinds of releases that you've been looking for. And I think that that's going to be part of the subject of our conversation today is that uh, you know if you're living in a major metropolitan area like this one, you're able to see all kinds of new releases, things that might not even be in English, uh, but uh, people in other parts of the country really don't have access uh, to that kind of uh, cultural engagement. So I think that that's probably um, going to be a part of what we're talking about today.
1: Yeah, that's right. And it's really great that you're in a big metropolitan area where you are, so you do get those kinds of... Of movie theaters, um, the big thing that Busan gets is the big Busan International Film yeah. Festival. Often, I don't. Often, we don't get the Oscar movies as often as as early as I would like. Like it's always best to be able to watch these before and be a part of the conversation. Yeah. But they often like to bring in the Oscar films sometimes after the ceremony is concluded. I guess because then they know there there's a lot of interest, um, but they don't really take into account people like us who are you know have interest before the ceremony too.
0: We do get a good selection of Cannes and Venice uh, festival selections at, at Biff, So it's like, it's really cool in that regard. Uh, but yeah, definitely the
2: Oscar movies we have to wait. Yeah, I think the kind of the sequence that you're describing does demonstrate itself part of the value of the Oscars, right? Because what you're describing is that there's a wave of demand to watch these sorts of movies in the wake of the nominations and wins at the ceremony that the Oscars are doing a pretty good job of making those kinds of uh, movies relevant and getting people interested in seeing them. And that's what creates the demand that gets the movies in the cinemas at that time. So if you don't have access to them before, and then the Oscars come along and there's enough interest to support, um, you know, the exhibition of those movies. I mean, you're showing just there how the Oscars are still relevant and how they're still playing a role in cultivating um, interest in those kinds of releases.
0: Yeah, definitely, and it's it's still kind of as a curation service almost of of value. Um, you know, we end up seeing kind of uh, Oscar slates of of films being shown. Uh, you know, in our art house theaters here, and and as well as mainstream kind of cinemas as well. Uh, I just kind of wanted to ask you in general. I mean, I, I think I know what your answer is going to be, but what did you think of the Oscar nominees in general this year? Uh, And the the winners, Um, what was your sense of of this year's Oscars uh, ceremony?
2: Um, Overall, I thought it was a pretty strong slate of nominees. It was a pretty diverse uh, selection of genres, of of themes and tones, so to speak. Uh, I think the most disappointing aspect of it, which I'm sure is going to be a subject of our conversation, was the commercial performance of many of the nominees. Because in a different environment, a different commercial environment, A lot of those really look like the kinds of movies that could be mainstream hits. You know, it was only a few years ago that the King's Speech, you know, middle brow, masterpiece theater type of awards contender uh, made $135 million at the domestic box office. And today we've got movies that you'd think would actually have more commercial potential that are really uh, kind of uh, mainlining at the box office. Uh, But there were, as far as... You know, my personal taste and the quality of the nominees, there were definitely things that were nominated that I really liked. I thought that uh, Power of the Dog was excellent, Uh, exceptional movie. It really surprises you where it ends up. You think you know what the movie's about, and it turns out that the whole thing has been about something else at the end. And, um, you know, pulling the carpet out from under you in that sense is a great trick. And I thought that it it totally landed it. A lot of really interesting stuff with all the different characters in the movie. I thought Kirsten Dunst was exceptional. Um, I also really like drive my car. I went to see it on my birthday. And just like we were talking about, I had the chance to go see that in the cinema at the Coolidge Corner Theater in Brookline, Massachusetts. And I don't think that people living in other parts of the U.S., let alone in other markets, would be able to do that, which is, you know, I'm very fortunate. I thought that was great. I loved that movie. Um, I also really liked licorice pizza. I thought it was hilarious. Um, a lot of fun to watch. And I was already looking forward to seeing it again after finishing um, some of the stuff that wasn't in the top category that I thought was really good uh, might include uh, Worst Person in the World, uh, which um, I read a really interesting analysis of it in a, in a place that surprised me, which is like a conservative American uh, uh, website. Uh, but they kind of presented it as a, a generational study that the movie is, is representing a typical experience for many people who were born around the time that I was in the early 1990s, where you have too many options in life. And uh, you have a difficult time committing to anything. Uh, You're spoiled by choice in the, you know, age of Western late capitalism. And uh, I think that that's something that's a really interesting thing to explore. It reminds me a little bit of The Graduate in that sense. I thought that was very good. Also, Parallel Mothers, you know, hard to say no to a Moldvar. I don't know if I liked it quite as much as the stuff that he was doing in that you know, 1999 to 2004 range when he was probably at his very peak. But it's still very good. Interesting stuff about Spanish Civil War uh, and, you know, exploring that question of when we lie to ourselves about our past, how do we know where we came from and who we are? Uh, So those were some of the really good stuff. Um, Dune, you know, another good one. There was some stuff in there that maybe wasn't quite as good in the mix. Uh, You know, there was clearly a second tier artistically among the top nominees stuff like uh belfast king richard and coda definitely more middle brow type entertainment but uh we're all hoping that there's still going to be a place for that kind of material in the market and i think that that's a lot of um what uh, rosto thought was tapping at in that piece that he wrote in the new york times you know when you talk about the second
1: tier of oscars i know john you weren't really too fond of don't look up
2: is that right uh yeah i mean you know I, I, I liked it a bit better than Vice, which was Adam McKay's previous movie. And I, I didn't like it quite as much as this one before that, which was The Big Short, which I actually am very fond of. I, I know that the kind of critical community has soured on all, uh, you know, post serious uh, Adam McKay uh, ventures, but I, I still think that The Big Short holds up pretty well. Um, it takes its subject matter more seriously. I think then uh, Vice or Don't Look Up really do. Uh, I thought Don't Look Up was watchable. I I don't think that it's particularly insightful. Uh, I thought that Jonah Hill was very funny in it. I thought that um, he kind of stole the show. And that uh, is pretty interesting considering that he was performing in scenes with people like Meryl Streep, Leonardo DiCaprio, and uh, Jennifer Lawrence. It really does say something about his charisma and star power. Uh, but yeah, it's a very slight movie. Uh, it, it, it's very thin, but uh, it seems to think of itself as being a bit deeper. And that's always a bit unfortunate.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I like what you said too about having too much choice. Um, I visited my family in the States and that was the first time I was in the States in nine years. And we went to the mm. supermarket and I just was looking at the cheese section and I just thought, there's so much cheese here. I just I I can't. I'm just not going to buy any.
2: Yeah, well, <laughs> there's a scene any of that. You've seen the Hurt Locker, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's like that famous scene with the cereal aisle when he comes back from mm-hmm. Iraq and he's looking at all of the boxes of cereal and all the choices and he's saying, "Is this, you know, what we fought the war for?" Yeah, but I think it's a scene in Borat too, a, a deleted
0: scene or something, where yeah, he the cheese, yeah. he goes to a supermarket and just goes down the row, saying like, "This is cheese, this is cheese," and then like goes all the way to the second row and does the same thing.
2: Um, yeah, yeah. But- the, the attendant at the supermarket who's answering those questions and telling him that each piece of cheese is cheese um, is <laughs> yeah. a real hero. He's a, you know a demonstration of yes. patience that is almost saintly. I think.
0: Oh, absolutely. And uh, listen, I I pretty much agreed with you on on your kind of your Oscar breakdown. I I really appreciated uh, Drive My Car. Uh, I had a chance to see it at Biff and Mm. was just, you know, really loved the everything about it. I mean, it's the sort of movie that that challenges you a a little bit. It's what, a three hour
2: movie? Yeah. And the uh, opening titles don't start until 45 minutes in.
0: Absolutely. And I thought that was really interesting. And just the whole kind of setup, uh, i had actually just recently watched um, Vanya on 42nd Street. And uh, mm. so came into it with kind of a, an appreciation of Uncle Vanya. And then when it went into that, that was super interesting. And just kind of the way apparently it was actually supposed to be shot in Busan originally, where Mike and I are living. Yeah. And because of COVID, they had to shoot it in Japan um and kind of change up some of the casting i believe well there um, is so the scene at the end
2: the the scene at the very end yes. of the movie i mean spoiler alert for anyone who hasn't seen it yet, but um is set in korea so it's at a it's at a
0: Megamart, and yeah. uh, that's a very recognizable uh supermarket chain here
2: um yeah fantastic it's, movie as well another interesting thing just because you you kind of talked about the korean component of it is that uh you know, in the United States right now, there's a lot of focus on diversity in media and entertainment. And, you know, Japanese cinema and Japanese mainstream culture has often been criticized for being a bit monocultural in its representation. But one of the great things about Drive My Car is that it does present a much more cosmopolitan image of Japan because you've got Chinese characters, you've got Korean characters, you've got uh, uh, I think that the character is not uh, deaf, but she is mute but uh, a disabled character who's a, a prominent character, it is presenting um, a much more kind of international and cosmopolitan image of uh, Japanese society than a lot of the other movies that are exported from that industry.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And, and that was incredibly powerful, I think, the way he used that kind of diverse cast. Um, and The Worst Person in the World, I thought, was was just a fantastic uh, piece of filmmaking. I mean, I would have been happy... I personally thought that it should have been up for best picture as well um, given that that category's gone a little bit more international I was happy drive my car was there um, but I thought that was as deserving in a way as as drive
2: my car there's something very a very interesting counterfactual with the academy awards where um it, the Academy awards first nominated a non-English language movie way back in the late 1930s and it's one you know one of the greatest movies ever made a uh, grand illusion by Jean Renoir. Right. And you can imagine uh the you know the alternate history if the Oscars had actually given the trophy to that movie. Um if they had you know given a non-English language movie 70 80 years before Parasite would we have seen a different, you know, uh, talos of the Academy Awards for, throughout the 20th century. And it, you know, evolved as a real global award rather than an American award. Um, it could have just been one different decision one time that would have charted a completely different future for what the institution really is. Uh, so it is interesting to think about that.
0: Well, and he, he mentions the box office point too, because I, I think he he does make a really... Good point, and John, you alluded to this earlier. Apparently, the ten nominees together barely made a fourth the box office of the last Spider-Man movie, and you know, COVID, of course, has something to do with that. He mentions "Don't Look Up" was popular on Netflix. I think it was its, its second most popular film for a while. Uh, so, you know, that's there. There are other factors at play there, but there's money talks in, in filmmaking and and that's kind of undeniable in a way when you compare it
2: to other years and, and other eras in in Oscar history. And well, you can really just compare it to two years ago because uh, if you look at the Academy Award nominees from uh, 2019, you see a lot of uh, big commercial hits, ones that were not attached to franchises or pre-existing intellectual property. Uh, you see, you know. Plus one hundred million dollar gross. That the hundred million dollar mark is often viewed as the kind of benchmark. You know, you get nine figure domestic gross, you've you know hit a milestone, and you can see these grosses above one hundred million for movies like nineteen seventeen, uh, the the Tarantino one, which was called uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, uh, Ford versus Ferrari, Little Women. I think might have crossed one hundred million. So even just a couple years ago, there was a pretty healthy market for these kinds of movies, and that's why I think that the COVID factor really does need to be considered pretty strongly. Um, Whether the U.S. market can come out of COVID with our pre-COVID habits and consumer inclinations intact, I think is a big question, though. Because uh, I think uh, Ross noted this, and many have noted this, what COVID really did was exacerbate this pre-existing trend which was a shift towards home viewing and away from the cinema. And, you know, this is a trend that goes all the way back to the 1950s with the emergence of television. As we know, uh, commercial exhibition peaked much earlier um, in like the late 1930s and early 1940s. That was really the heyday of of cinema um, in the theatrical exhibition. And if you do inflation adjustments, you can see how uh, movies in that era made much, much more Than even the stuff in the 1990s and um, early 2000s that we see in the unadjusted grosses as the all time tentpoles like Titanic, Lord of the Rings and Avatar, you know, stuff like Gone with the Wind that made twice as much money as um, uh, any of these uh, later day blockbusters. Uh, So that was really the peak. And we've been moving towards home viewing really since then, especially since the 1950s introduction of television and now with streaming. Uh, but the thing is, these things can coexist. You know, it's not entirely zero sum. And even a few years ago, there was a, a, a kind of balance. Uh, the problem is that when COVID comes, even if we can look at this period as aberrational, um, the experience of going through COVID is going to impact the way that consumers have trained themselves to uh, engage with uh, these products. So if I was a guy who used to go to the cinema all the time. Then during COVID, I started watching everything at home. Even if the cinema becomes a more viable option for me, maybe I've just just become accustomed to watching things at home. And uh, I've come to um, appreciate the home viewing experience, which has really advanced. Maybe I'm not going to go back to the cinema, even though I can. And that's, I think, the tricky thing when we're trying to project future box office, because we are going to come out of COVID. There's no longer mask requirements in American cinemas. But maybe people just don't want to go back anymore. And um, what's funny is that uh, we're seeing uh, people are really rooting for uh, the cinematic exhibition, rooting for the kinds of movies to perform well that they wouldn't have even five, 10 years ago. Uh, I can give you two examples. In the last month, we've had um, a Michael Bay Actioner release called Ambulance. This is the kind of movie that people would have been rooting to fail uh, (laughs) 10 years ago. But now it's, uh, you know, the best chance that uh, non-IP action filmmaking can survive in exhibition. Another one is this movie, The Lost City, which is a relatively disposable rom-com with a couple big stars. The kind of movie that would have been a big hit in the 1990s and early 2000s. And this is another one where, you know, the hopes of cinema are riding on its back. It made 30 million in its opening, so that's actually a pretty promising sign. Ambulance, less promising sign, only 15 million after two weeks, I think. But uh, you know, Lost City, maybe that shows that the market is going to come back alive again. Uh, it's really a big open question. And that's, sorry, that's such a rambling answer, uh, but uh, this is some of the way that I'm thinking about the box office right now.
0: I think another example of that is West Side Story. I mean, yeah, Spielberg was famously the guy who kind of sold out New Hollywood, right, and I think there was a lot of, there were a lot of people who were kind of, I wouldn't say rooting for Spielberg to fail, but they kind of considered him kind of like the boss box office king for for the longest time. Now that hasn't exactly been true for a while, but West Side Story did not do very well at all, um, considering its no. budget. From what I understand, I just think that also plays into this. You know, e- even myself. Five ten years ago, I would not have been rooting as strongly as I am for a Spielberg film to do well at the box office. It feels more dire now, doesn't it? Like it feels like this
1: really should,
2: this really needs to do well. You know what I would actually point at as, um, you know, the (laughs) a real shift in the way that we perceive Spielberg's viability is a release from a few years ago, the BFG. Do you remember that? Mm, vaguely, yeah. Yes. yeah. Spielberg's BFG. That was um, a huge commercial failure. Um, I, I don't remember the numbers off the top of my head, but it was remarkable uh, how little it earned um, and uh, how large its budget was. And I think that that was really the point at which we could say you know, Spielberg doesn't have the same draw that he used to. And, you know, you would think that that one would have some um, potential because it is based on a pretty popular book by a very, very popular writer. And, um, you know, the Spielberg name is still recognized by mainstream consumers. Uh, But that was a big failure. And I think that that was the point in which, um, you know, Spielberg was no longer the behemoth that he once was, especially as a director.
1: He doesn't do the same kind of thing that he used to. He doesn't make the big adventure movies like he used to. You know, even in the like early two thousands, he moved on to things like Catch Me If You Can and The Terminal and things like that. Recently, he went back to Ready Player One, but perhaps by then the world had moved on.
2: Yeah, he was kind of. I think even by the eighties, he was interested in exploring uh, these historical dramas. Mm. Uh, when he had stuff like uh, The Empire of the Sun, and then in the nineteen nineties, he was doing a lot of that kind of material like Amistad was another one yeah but he's um, even but then he was that, still doing yeah. Jurassic Park
1: you know he still had that kind yeah of, that's true yeah the same year he did Schindler's List
2: yeah yeah he is interesting that he did do a lot of um uh two releases in a year there's a few years that he did another one was um 2002 I think he did Catch Me and Minority Report and yeah. there's 2011 when he had Warhorse and Tintin and then there's 2005 where he had War of the Worlds and Munich And often you do see kind of the fun one and the historical one um, as the, you know, what he matches up when he does two in a year. So, you know, he'll throw in a few of those. He did, you know, uh, Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. So, uh, you know, he's still, uh, you know, one for one for the history books, one for the popcorn fans, uh, you know, mixing and matching uh, even in his later years. Well, there's there's two other trends that are related
0: to kind of the I guess the increase in home viewership and, and you yeah. know more people turning towards streaming and stuff like that that Douthat mentions. Yeah. And I thought they're kind of interesting because they speak to these sorts of things about, you know, why there's suddenly like people rooting for like Michael Bay to do well and stuff like that. And yeah. I, I think one of the points he brings up is uh kind of like how the internet has kind of become the the space for not just film discussion, but just cultural discourse more generally. Yeah. Like he mentions, younger people at a certain point growing up, like you had to see certain films to participate in kind of the cultural currency of the moment. He he calls them kind of uh, rites of initiation mm. into uh, adulthood, and film is kind of lacking in a lot of the iconography I think today that that younger people need to kind of participate in youth culture. I, I think that's one point. But the other point is, you know, it's not only that people are watching more movies on the smaller screen, it's it's that TV, the TV format, since The Sopranos has, has really become like a, a, a huge competition for, you know, big screen filmmaking. And yep. with these two trends, you really kind of see this displacement of film as uh, a cultural power, as the central American art form, as he mentions, um, I thought it'd be interesting to get into that a little bit more, because you know I, I think in a way that's kind of undeniable. Um, it's it yeah it that those points really seem to ring
2: true to me. So um, I think the first point is certainly undeniable. I think that uh, it. You, it's impossible not to recognize that internet, uh, short form, uh, user-generated content, memes—these sorts of things are now the cultural currency of the day, especially among the youngest generation, the Gen Zers. Uh, I think that that's absolutely true, and it's a huge part of what Ross is talking about in the in the article, which is that you know perhaps cinema is no longer the premier mainstream popular art form it was in the 20th century; it's not in the 21st. Uh, I think that that is completely accurate. Mm -hmm. On the TV side, this is probably where I think that I have uh, a real divergence of view from the view that Rostow thought was expressing in that column. And um, that's partly because I am perceiving uh, causes for concern in the architecture of television and the streaming space in a way that Ross did not really address in his piece. Um, I think that it's possible that if he had written this piece a couple months later, he might have started to see some of these signs. For example, um, I'll develop this in a little bit, but uh, some of the recent news about Netflix um, is sort of what I had been worried about before and what I think more people are catching on to now.
0: You're listening to an edited version of this episode, to gain access to the full versions of both this and other episodes, go to patreon.com slash dark. For as little as $1.50 a month, you can not only gain access to our full episodes, but check out some other bonus content as well. And for around $3 a month, you can actually make fan requests to determine what sort of topics we talk about in future episodes. And ladies and gentlemen, you just heard the first part of our full discussion with John W. Gunnison. Be sure to check out part two, where we get into things like the changing nature of youth culture and kind of the erasure of the line between youth audiences and adult audiences and how this has led to the decline of what we might call the adult responsibility to consume serious and challenging art. Uh, We also get into some of our favorite films from 2021, so be sure to check out that. We had a great time talking with John. As well, I just wanted to kind of wrap up by talking a little bit about what we were talking about towards the end of our discussion that you just heard about the internationalization of American film institutions and American film studios. Because I think the point that John was making about how American film studios have helped South Korea or or Chinese uh, film markets develop is very much related to the point I was making about how, you know, middle budget, uh, more say, challenging or, or at least culturally specific American cinema has declined. You know, We're talking about movies like There Will Be Blood, No Country for Old Men, movies kind of in that vein. And I think the two phenomena are very much related. And I would have loved to have gotten a bit more into that because I think it's a really interesting question about how the internationalization, the globalization of American film institutions and studios are related to the decline, the hollowing out of American cinema itself. So hopefully we can bring John back on on a future episode to talk about that. And you can check out our podcasts almost anywhere podcasts are found. Thank you for listening and we'll see you in the next episode.